I think we've lost a sense that the past is a resource. That the, it, it, the, the past is not just something we edit to our predilection. Uh, because when we do that, all we get back is the mirror of ourselves. My guest today is Professor Wilfred Bill McClay. Professor McClay is the GT and Libby Blankenship Chair in the History of Liberty at University of Oklahoma and the director of the Center for the History of Liberty. Dr. McClay's latest book is The Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story. Daniel Henninger of the Wall Street Journal said, McClay has written a necessary book, the most balanced, nuanced history of the United States I have read in the past 50 years. Land of Hope has close to 900 five-star reviews on Amazon, outstanding for a book on American history. I recently sat down with Professor McClay to talk about what motivated him to write Land of Hope and why he thinks it struck such a nerve with so many. Bill, I'd like to thank you so much for being on the show. I have really anticipated this meeting. I read parts of your fantastic book, which I definitely want to get into. And once again, I just want to thank you for being on the show. Well, it's my pleasure, really. It's a, this is a great opportunity to ta- talk with a, a highly intelligent reviewer and, and, uh, and, and critic and observer. So uh, uh, have I flattered you enough there? Uh, keep, keep going, <laughs> keep going, keep going. Okay. Yeah, okay. So uh, you wrote a book, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. Now, I was looking through some of the reviews, and I just want to share one with you. In a time when America seems pulled in opposite directions, Wilfred McClay has written a necessary book. And I quote here, the most balanced, nuanced history of the United States I have read in the past 50 years. This is Daniel Henninger, deputy editor, editorial page, The Wall Street Journal. Now, you can't pay enough of that. Why did he say that? Well, you know, I, 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 you know, modesty forbids me to, to, uh, to <laughs> say too much about that, except that that's, that's really what I was trying to do. I was trying to um, not to write a, uh, a, a conservative book, a liberal book, uh, you know, a moderate book, but I wanted it to be balanced. Uh, I wanted it to give uh, some degree of respect and uh, credibility to uh, a variety of positions, uh, uh, not all of which I agreed with, but that uh, um, that I thought I deserved a hearing. So it's not really an effort to establish a sort of an official version of American history. Although I think it it uh, it's interesting that the book, the criticism has all come from the left. Um, what criticism I've encountered? It's all. all uh, coming from the left and it's sort of well yes you do um you do take account of slavery you do take account of these things but you don't make them the center of things and that's right i don't i don't do that um uh and uh that's really the the nub of the disagreement they have with me is that i want to acknowledge our faults, but I also want to acknowledge our glories. And I think that to miss one without missing the, without, to, to, to include one without including the other is a terrible disservice to, to real historical understanding. 
How do you how do you start a book like this? You know, I always want to tell you all oh, just before you even go on. Uh, I got sent this book by your publisher about two weeks ago. I put it aside. I had so many other books, and, and I was just reading and going through. I happened to read the 1620, 1620 book. Oh, that's a terrific, yeah. By Peter Wood, and I had him on the show earlier, and I asked, uh, I asked Dr. Wood, I said, uh, he said, people should read more about American history, and I said, could you give my listeners a, an example of, of, or just anything that you think they should read. And he looks around his bookcase. He goes, Land of Hope. It's an outstanding history book. So why, wh- how do you start writing a book like this? That is, that's, that's really, I, I, I've read a lot of history books. Uh, from William Bennett, uh, 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 The Last Great Hope, I think it was. He wrote a two-volume book on American history, which is very conservative, has a whole other side of history. Uh, Harold is it Zine or Zine? I never pronounce his name correctly. Zin. Zin. Howard, Howard Zin's book, which it sounded like it was written in Moscow. And then I read your <laughs> book. And I read parts of your book. Yeah. And I want to get into some parts, which I just blew me away. How do you sit down and play not near the baseline? You play right in the center court. How do you go about doing something like that? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting because the I, I first of all, I, I've been teaching this stuff. I mean, people who see see me know that I didn't start doing this yesterday. Um, I'm I've been doing this for 30 years or more, more than 30 years, and uh, and a lot of that time I've taught the introductory course in American history, whatever institution I've been a part of. You know, I and uh, um, I always wanted to do that because I wanted students to get a sense. A, a, a larger sense of American history, of the, of the the trajectory of it, the meaning of it, uh, that, and not just uh, as Henry Ford said, one damn thing after another. I mean, a lot of us, that's history courses, is one damn thing after another. Uh, and in Howard Zinn's case, it's one damnable thing after another. But um, uh, so I I I've been at this a while, and I've formed you know some fairly. I hope coherent views about about American history uh, and about the various controversies in it and their place in a larger understanding. And so, so I really started out with a, a sense of the whole. And the first thing I did, as as you know, authors generally write the titles for their books uh, last, and with a with a good deal of help from the publisher often who, who says well no put a title like that the book won't sell people you know do it this way and uh, i've i've had some of my titles tinkered with by uh, by publishers who, who generally knew better than i did what to do with the title but in this case i the title was the first thing uh because i thought what what do i want to convey above all to young people, and that's really my audience. This is really, a, a, you know, I don't want to scare your audience off, but this is really a textbook. It's, uh, it doesn't look like a textbook, it doesn't feel like one, it doesn't read like one, but it, it, I really meant it for the instruction of young people, you know, juniors and seniors in high school, maybe maybe college students, uh, some, some that is being used in college classes. But uh, so what's the one thing I wanted to get across? And that is, I think that America, it has been, we've changed in lots of ways, but it's always been about um, 
aspiration. We are an aspirational nation. We, we are a nation made up of people who do not believe that your lot in life is what you were born into. Um, that you you can go places, you can do things, you can you can rise, you can fall. It, it's it's sort of up to you to to do what you can, and I, that seems to be so fundamentally American. And not just that we offered have offered the conditions, material conditions, you know, lots of relatively inexpensive land and all that, but it's it's the outlook, it's the the, the, the kind of morale of the country, it's the psyche, the, the, the soul of the country that is about hope. So I, I loved Land of Hope um, as a title and, uh, and I just wrote it out and I pinned it to my computer monitor uh, and there it stayed for the whole, uh, the rest of it. So then it was just a matter of, of, of parsing out what uh, in a lot of ways, my chapter sequence is fairly um, usual. There's nothing radical about it. There, there are some things that are subtly different. Like I, I the, 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 the chapter on the American Revolution, I call the, the revolution of self-rule because I want to emphasize that aspect of uh, what the American Revolution was about, that it was not, you know, there's a lot of debates among it. Was it about sort of natural rights? Was it based on religion? Was it based on the radical Whig ideas? Uh, you know, was it economic in character? It, and, and was it a revolution of uh, the, the, the American elites against the, the English elites? And, um, was it a social revolution like the French Revolution? You know, and all, all those debates are out there, but um, I wanted to emphasize that it was about ruling ourselves. That that's one thing I think is irreducibly true, that, that Americans, and I end the chapter with a, this wonderful interview with a, a, a very elderly patriot who's asked, you know, what? why, why did you fight the war? And he goes through all of these different things, this stamp act, the tax on tea. And the guy said, no, we didn't care about any of this. And, and, and he said, well, what? why did you? Uh, why did you fire those shots in Lexington and Concord? And he said, well, look, young man, we had always ruled ourselves. Uh, and they were, uh, the, the Redcoats came to try to end that. And we weren't about to let that happen. And uh, I think that's a very important strain of American history that sometimes get lost, gets lost in all these debates about what the revolution was about. So it's simply the right to rule ourselves. Right. Uh, so, so why at this juncture in time did you feel such a need to put out a book like this? Okay, yeah, good question. Uh, there was an approximate cause. Uh, the... Uh, the advanced placement tests, which are administered, all of them are administered by the College Board, an organization called the College Board. It's a private uh, organization, private nonprofit organization. And uh, they, uh, they administered the AP US history test, which increasingly, partly by design, is becoming a kind of national standard. Um, that's another story, why, why that's happened. Um, but uh, they, in 2014, they revised the standards for, um, for, for advanced placement testing and for the preparation, advanced placement courses that prepared students to take the exam. And it was a 
quite shocking uh, uh, overhaul in which political history of you know, the story of, of how the nation came to be, of the wars involved, of the, the, the debates over the Constitution, that whole sequence of events. Um, uh, these, this was radically de-emphasized in place of, you know, transatlantic economic history, you know, the emphasis on the slave trade and the triangle trade and that sort of thing. And, and uh, uh, the names George Washington and James Madison did not appear in these guidelines. And so a number of us um, uh, came together and, and drafted a letter. About 200 people eventually signed it, um, you know, protesting and, 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 and pleading with the college board to reconsider um, their changes. And they, they did retract a lot of it, most of it, in fact. And uh, Dan Henninger, in fact, uh, wrote a column uh, in the Wall Street Journal saying, um, okay, conservatives, you got what you wanted, now shut up. And uh, uh, But the problem with, is that Dan, I bow to no one in my admiration for Dan Henninger, especially after that quote that you read. <laughs> but on this, there was something else going on. The, the textbook publishers had already revised the text in light of the revisions of the AP standards. So uh, people noticed this and they started to say, well, we really need another textbook. We need a textbook. And they would come and say to me, do we need another textbook? And I would say, I agree with you. I hope you find somebody to do mm -hmm. it because I didn't really want to. But um, several people and <clears throat> chief among them, Roger Kimball, a publisher of Encounter Books uh, and a, a real dynamo of a person, um, managed to persuade me to do it. Um, I couldn't believe it myself that I was when I hung up the phone. I thought, my God, what have I done? I agreed to this, but I'm so glad I did it because it um, gave me an opportunity to kind of pull together what I've been doing for 30 years and kind of, and distill it down to a very essential core. Um, it, it's it's definitely it's not the last word, and, and I've called it an invitation to the great American story, which is because. It's not. Um, it's 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 an invitation to a party. It's not the whole party itself. Uh, uh, but it, as an invitation, you want it to be enticing. You want people to want to come, and then come in and and, and take part in a lot larger and longer conversation. So that's what it was. It was a you know a come on to American history. Come on in uh, um, and uh, and and see that, uh, especially since so much of what young people are taught about American history is negative now. And not all of it is false by any means. Um, it's just lacks perspective. That's what I've tried to provide is, is perspective on our national failings, our national sins, if you will, that are real. Um, I, would, I would add, and I often do in the book, that these are not just national, these are not just American sins, these are human sins, these are human foibles, human failings. Um, something I don't do in the book very much, but I did do a lot as a teacher, is when I started to hear students talking about America's failings, I, I will sort of wend my way into asking them, 
they sort of compared to what question? Tell me another country that's doing better at this time, at this particular time. Um, and usually they don't know enough to answer the question. But if they do know something, they know that, that nobody was doing better. Um, and that it, it's, it's, it's unfair and a false understanding of the past to compare American history against a standard of perfection that no other people and no other nation would be expected to meet, you know, impeccably. Um, but if we compare ourselves to other nations, then, then and, and, and the, the opportunity that we offered, even though admittedly that opportunity was often less than complete, there was um, racial and ethnic discrimination uh, and discrimination against you know, Catholics and Jews was not all that long ago. Um, it, it's, uh, and, and I think people who remember that sort of thing uh, are, are, are kind of nonplussed by the claim that they are part of uh, a plot of white supremacy. Now, there's actually the, the record of the country as much of, of the country's sins is much more di diverse than that. Mm. Uh, um, and we need to know all of that. We do need to know all that, but we need to see it in proper perspective. Right. That's the thing that I think is missing. Yeah. You know, they, I'll just say one other thing quickly that, that, that my students are absolutely thrown. They're shocked when I say two things about slavery. First of all, uh, you, you may, the United States is not the only nation in the history of the world to have slavery. Slavery has existed, has been more the rule than the exception throughout human history. Yeah, the history of the human race is a brutal, ugly thing. And we are, uh, comparatively speaking, shining light in that. And the second thing is that there are more people enslaved today, today in in the world than than uh, than were involved in three three or four times uh, uh, the number that were involved in the Atlantic slave trade. So um, it's again it's it's perspective that's required, and yeah. and uh, we we don't often offer that. And I think that's a shame. Yeah. You know, when, when you see your students, these are college, uh, this is, yeah. uh, this is college students. So, um, and very I, good students here at Oklahoma. I have to tell you, we have great students. Yeah. I think they're coming to the game without much of a background. They're really coming to, uh, to universities uh, with a watered-down version of what made this country great. And professors like you, which are far and few in between, um, they're, they're fertile ground. They're really fertile ground yeah. to listen to anybody. They really do want to learn. I know when I... I've always loved American history, especially the uh, Revolutionary War period. And I've read as many books as I can on it. And I find it just so fascinating that these were men faced with amazing challenges and they were the landed gentry, if you will, of their time, instead of going into business or in addition to business, they felt public service was a calling. And they're creating mm -hmm. something new. They're taking on a world power. <laughs> so to be, judged yes. in, in, to be judged in 21st century standards to what they were doing at the time is just ludicrous. It's just absolute insanity. It, it, no other nation it, to that point in, in human history had ever been founded on the view that all men are created equal. And, the, and, these um, are, and these are people, these are men in their 30s. 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're yeah, the oldest, they're very, 30s, 40s, you know, they're very young. You're young. Uh, Washington's very, 41. Uh, 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 Franklin's the old man with gout in the, his 80s. But you had Jefferson, 33. Uh, John Adams, 36. These are young men. Young men mm-hmm. just a few years older than your college students. And they put, they, they signed their name to a document that they would have been hanged for in the pursuit of creating a new society based on freedom. Yeah. Now, that is one of the things that just seems absolutely miraculous is that this leadership class arose. You know, I have to say that, 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 that part of it may well have had to do with the tradition of self-rule that, that, it was well established, you know, 150 years uh, in more than 150 years in Virginia that there there were, uh, you know, institutions of self-government and and it's when people have the opportunity to interact politically and, and develop um, both the skills of politics but also the they have the education and outlook to think about the principles of politics, then you get. Uh, well, you get the Federalist Papers, and by the way, the Anti-Federalist Papers too. I mean, they they, they are um, not necessarily always of the same consistent high quality as a Federalist Paper, but man, they're very as reflections on um, the meaning of political life and the and the, the limitations uh, to which we are prone and the things you have to allow for in thinking about politics. They were very wise. They were very prudent. They were not wild-eyed, utopian revolutionaries. Uh, even that, Jefferson, who yeah, could yeah. be a bit wild-eyed. I found that how not only, you know, reading the Federalist Papers, for example, or just going through and reading what uh, uh, Madison, when he when he's assigned to come up with some idea, he orders whole sets of books from France on, on uh uh, on Greek, uh, the Greek form of governments, and this five-foot man sits and reads all of them. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's just amazing how in their writings that I've always found, and I'm not a historian, I would probably get a D in your class, I, I, they, would, they would be so reflective, and they were so wise and mature beyond their years. It's reflected of how they saw, they saw the whole picture. They just didn't see their own interests. No, that's right. That's right. And I think that's one of the real uh, uh, calumnies against them is the notion that they that they were solely interested in feathering their nests and and uh, and creating a regime that would be favorable to them. I think that's that's clearly not the case. And and some of them took enormous risks um, in, and, and lost fortunes in and lost fortunes because of it. Yes. Yes, yes. I, I think the greatest miracle of that time period is Washington himself. I mean, I'm more and more and more impressed with him as, as time goes on with the, and, and with how it just uh, it's, it's hard to imagine that we would have made it without him. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. You hear that? That's what turkeys sound like. You know what else sounds like turkeys? This. Not surprising when the 21st annual Trust Barometer, published by Edelman Research, shows that more Americans distrust institutions like the media, government, and business than ever before. That's why podcasts like The Charles Mizrahi Show have taken off like a moonshot. Because, as Edelman reports, people are craving facts. Real facts. Not the whitewashed mumbo-jumbo cooked up by the financial media. So if you want straight-up facts on where the real money is made in stocks 
and you want it served up in a way that's fun, simple to follow, and profitable, stop listening to the turkeys and listen to America's number one alpha investor, Charles Mizrahi, and how he helped an American patriot you know well make more money in two weeks than most investors make in two years. For more details, go to investingpatriots.com. That's investingpatriots, all one word, dot com. I guarantee you'll be glad you did. I read Ron Charno's book, Washington of Life. Yeah. And before that, I read McCullough's book on 1776. And I heard an interview with David McCullough. And he said, what fascinated you, or something, I'm not, I'm not beginning the question 100% right, but the essence of it was, what fascinated you about the founding fathers? And he said something which I said, wow, that, makes that they didn't get sick. <laughs> you know, you think of this, what they lived through. Yes. And, uh, you know, at, at Washington, at, at uh, Valley Forge, and uh, his wife, uh, uh, Martha, cleaning up the feces and, and the human waste between the tents and the dysentery. Oh, my goodness. And they didn't get sick. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, now that is and it's something I've thought about a lot, and I'm sure you have, too, and, you know, that, that it seems that very, very successful people often have constitutions and i mean their physical constitutions that are extraordinary that they if they only need need three hours of sleep you know and, and i remember reading that about henry kissinger in his prime thinking wow if i only needed three hours of sleep you know think of the what i do with the additional five that uh, i'd be been granted and uh, uh I, I think that that i think that's uh i'm not sure that anybody's ever really studied that you know the the, the role that um just, just having, you know, the resistance to disease, uh, you know, robust health that conquers all. Um, yeah, and, John, and, and John Adams, for example, his family was going through uh, uh, his daughter with um, a breast cancer, uh, his family with smallpox, or they were getting a, um, a yes. vaccine for smallpox. So there, there were real sicknesses there that most people died yeah. in their 40s and 50s, and these men lived into their yeah. 70s and 80s. Well, Washington's a little younger, 69 and upwards of 80 years old. It's, it's, and, 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 and Franklin, he lives into his age with gout, yes. but he still, he still lives a pretty long life. Yes, yes. No, and, and it is, it is uh, again, it's something universal, I think, that when you think of people like Alexander the Great and so on, that, that, that these were prodigies of strength and resistance to disease. Yeah, yeah, but you, you put up the point of, of Washington, right? Washington is Kipps Bay, and several times throughout his, his, his military, he is really within a, a whisker of getting killed. He, he dealt with all sorts of reversals, uh, going back to the French and Indian War, which he, in which he was uh, Fiasco. You know, Fiasco. very, very unsuccessful, let's say. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, and yet he was, uh, he was indomitable. He absolutely indomitable yeah, and, he, um, and selfless in a certain way. I mean, he he uh, he he was very conscious, very conscious that he was the first president and that he would be setting precedents um, in his presidency that that would uh, that would quite possibly extend beyond himself. And so everything he did, he, he thought about it, thought about appearance. Um, you know, he was—he wasn't just a substance guy. He was a—he was an optics guy, 
you know, he cared about optics. Yeah, and, he uh, just sat in the Constitutional Convention. He sat quietly on the side. Yeah, just a grimace right. or a smile could change the whole argument in the room. Uh, he walked yeah. into the, with a, with a uniform back in the day. You know, he was uh, he he was really a close horse. So he he looked the part. <laughs> he was six one. But you think yeah. at any given point, it, any given point, if he was killed, how everything everything would have been different. Yeah, and, 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 and you know that the fact at the Constitutional Convention that there was a willingness to go along with the idea of a strong presidency was clearly because all the delegates present knew knew that he would be the man, and they trusted him uh, as they would not have trusted anybody else. Yeah. So, uh, so we, we are just so blessed, so fortunate to have had such a, a leader. And he was a real believer in, in you know, civic virtue, in, which is actually another aspect of my book is that I tried to, not, not in, a, in a hortatory or preachy way, but to, to um, get people to see that, that there's some ways in which we, we have to be good and active citizens for our, our nation to say, stay or become or restore itself to being a republic. But um, Washington was, uh, was absolutely wedded to these ideas. And he twice uh, um, had, for the troops, performed um, Addison's play Cato, uh, which I mentioned in Land of Hope, and, and uh, that this is uh, meant to be a sort of inspirational, let's, it was sort of a, their chariots of fire kind of story uh, that, that inspire them and get them, get them going and think, think anything is possible. So he, he had that ability to be uh, an inspirational leader, uh, more in the sort of example that he gave than in his, in his oratory, which was often a little bit uh, leaden, although his farewell address is one of the great speeches of American history. So, right. so it's, so it's uh, fair to say that he wasn't a white supremacist uh, trying to further his interest in the slave trade. No. No, I think All right. I think that's fair to say. All right, that was a said tongue-in-cheek for those who were listening. If you didn't see our facial expressions, totally, uh, totally a joke. So what, what, what gets me, Bill, which I just, I just, I just, I'm with my mouth hanging open here. For a textbook, a book on history, you have 964, as of this date, 964 five-star ratings. And people are writing this is a textbook, but I don't want to. By the way, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. But you read something outstanding history book, a masterpiece. Uh, this book should be rated ten. It's hard to put it down. It's engaging. <laughs> Why? What do you think? What nerve did you strike? I'm going to tell you my opinion in a second. What my my what the nerve you struck in me? What nerve did you strike, or did you think you strike, in? Americans that they're so, I don't know, having a love affair with this book? Oh, well, gosh, I mean, I, mean, I, um, I hope you're right that, that they're having a love affair with the book, but um, it, it's, um, and I do get a lot of mail. I mean, it, it's very humbling, really. Uh, but there, there were times I was sitting around with my, some of my colleagues who, all of whom thought, why are you doing this? You know, that, that this is, uh, you know, writing a textbook, this is something, it, 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 at best doesn't really count for anything. And at worst is a sort of discrediting thing um, among academics. And 
and to write with the general public in mind. It's often also, uh, I don't tend to hang out with people like that, but, but they're, they're, they're everywhere. And, you know, uh, in academia and, uh, and I remember saying, you know, one night it was kind of a tongue in cheek, but saying, well, you know, um, the Romans, uh, you know, Caesar Augustus, um, it, it, it's not clear whether or not he actually commissioned Virgil to write the Aeneid. Um, that's debated, but let's just say for the sake of argument, he, he certainly knew about it and approved of it. And uh, as a great sort of foundational story of Rome. And, uh, and I thought, you know, we don't really have, uh, we, we have these sort of fairy tale versions of American history um, and uh, that do leave out uh, or, or just edit out um, some of the negative details about our history. And, and people, I think rightly, say, I can't, I can't go for that. <laughs> to quote the Hall of Notes, I can't go for that. <laughs> um, because I know better. I know we had these things. Um, uh, but what they want is a, is a way to affirm, honestly affirm their country. Um, because they know that it's worthy of affirmation. They know it in their hearts. And they, but they also know that we're, we are on a downward trajectory and that you, that you can have, there's such a thing as a, as a self-fulfilling prophecy, that if you um, tell yourself you are a certain way, then there's really kind of no coming back from that self-understanding. Um, so uh, again, I'm not saying that this is a self, self-exalting myth. Uh, it's, it has to be true you know, to be believable. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's it just as it's important, it's important to be critical, but it's important to have that criticism grounded in appreciation and an appreciation that is based on a real assessment of what, of how fortunate we are to be part of this. See, you know, from, for me, I tell you, uh, that's a good, I, I like that response for me. What I found so uh, engaging with your book is your love, reverence, admiration for the system of government we have, for the actors throughout history who built what we have now, really shines through while you're being critical. It's like a. Well, a thanks. Yeah, it's that's, a, that's that's what I tried to do, and I and I also tried. I mean, it's it's a love of people in their fallibility. You know that 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 it the, the idea that that um uh you know, I had a class this past semester that, that which we were reading Tocqueville's uh, work, not Democracy in America, plus his work on the French Revolution. Very interesting class, and well, I had one student who was. Just from the very beginning, he was determined to dislike Tocqueville because to he thought Tocqueville didn't, uh, you know, he didn't condemn everything that the student thought ought to be worthy of condemn condemnation. And I said, well, you know, don't you think it's an important enterprise to try to understand, to understand how 
institutions that you find lamentable, how they arise, whether they arise out of a sort of pure, unadulterated evil operating in the world, which is very rarely the case, or out of the, the mixture of motives that real people in the real world have. And I think he finally came around by the end of the semester. Uh, but um, it was hard at first, and I thought to myself how much he resembled some of the worst tendencies of this current generation, at least the ones we see in the streets, um, who think that they have the right to pass judgment on not just Robert E. Lee uh, and so the Confederate generals, uh, but uh, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, the great black abolitionist, a, a man uh, of incomparable strength um, and uh, moral focus, moral uh, energy um, to pull down his statue. Uh, I mean, of course, pull down Columbus, who's a complicated figure, but not a villain. Um, that's one of Howard Zinn's gifts to us is the villain, villainization of, of, of Columbus. Um, uh, I, I try to encourage people to, to understand, or my readers, to understand the people of the past in the context of their times, so that someone like Jefferson, who clearly was a, you know, by our standards, a, a very confused man who, who just couldn't quite pull the trigger on renouncing slavery, even though he believed it was wrong. Uh, it's very clear that, and then that's which is not to say he believed in racial equality. That's another matter. But he. Um, he was a man, he was a, not man of his times, but also in advance of his times in a lot of ways. And we, we need to allow for that. I remember um, I, I had a great privilege of speaking at the White House on, I think it was Jefferson's 270th birthday or some, something like that. But, um, and I said in the speech that uh, I quoted from John Lewis, the civil rights leader, who just recently, has just recently died. Um, but still was going strong at that time. And I said, you know, John, quoted John Lewis saying, yeah, we knew with Jefferson, uh, it was so important to us. Yeah, of course we knew about his being a slaveholder, but that wasn't what mattered to us. What mattered to us was his words. His words were the fountain from which we drank and that every generation thereafter can drink from too. And I think that's absolutely right. And if, if um, uh, if, if, if John Lewis says it, I think people ought to listen. Uh, people who who uh, are, are uh, who care about issues of racial justice, racial equality, um, we we need to understand that everybody is ha, has elements. It's a dark side. Has it, all of us fall short? As, as the Bible says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. You know, it, it, it's it's uh, so it it and it's in that context that that kind of not non-judgmentalism. Nobody, nobody's accused me of being non-judgmental mm -hmm. in my book, mm -hmm. but 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 uh, not passing judgment, not say, not being the executioner, not saying we're we're going to ban Huckleberry Finn because we don't like a, a word that it, it appears in it. Even though the book is is and was in its time a great advance in racial understanding. 
or Pudman Wilson, that's the latest one that they've been going after uh, of Twain's. Um, you know, we, we are just immensely impoverished by the loss of, uh, and, and, and I know people who, uh, who would, won't, wouldn't think of teaching Huckleberry Finn now because of the controversy over, you know, which is, has been in the past and then it subsided and now it's re-erupted that um, we should just cancel, to use the term now in fashion, we should cancel anything that uh, offends our present sensibilities. It, it, it's a very strange view of the past. The past is something that we should tailor the way you tailor the, the backdrop uh, of, a, of, a, of a painting or a photograph or the way you tailor you know, your Facebook page so that it creates a reality that's more pleasing to your present sensibilities. Well, the past is what it is. Um, and it, it, a lot of it is, is ugly, a lot of it is uh, horrifying. Um, but it's the only, you know, it's the only laboratory we have, so to speak, for uh, looking at what human beings are capable of doing. Well, well, and, uh, well, well said, well said. Um, why, why do you think it is, you've devoted your life to educating, especially in history. Why is it when you mention history, most people's eyes glaze over? What do they, well, why is that? I think it, it, I, I, it, this goes back to the idea of, of, a, of story that I think, um, History, you know, in the, in the name itself, historia. <laughs> they say in Italian, historia, um, and is 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 in the deepest sense a story. Now we've, um, especially since the 19th century, we've had this idea that history can be a science, and that we can, and we can, of course, use scientific um, techniques to to understand the past and to reveal aspects of the past that we didn't know were there. You know, I have a colleague who's done amazing work on how um, plagues and uh, it was very timely. He published a book on the role of uh, plagues in ancient, right, the bringing about the decline of the Roman Empire. Uh, right as COVID was about to hit. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, it, and, and there's a lot of research about this, that uh, the, um, the eradication of, Native populations in the in in the, in the new world, the Western Hemisphere, mostly was due to disease and not to rapacious white European settlers who would uh, you know wanted to kill anyone with the red skin, um, and that of course all has to do with a lot of science that we understand now that they had not a clue about. Right, and if I could interject, in, in Peter Wood's book, uh, he he talks extensively about that, uh, yeah, about uh, Cortez and and uh, a lot of the things that. Uh, that a misconception today. We thought we knew what we're talking about. We just missed the boat on that. Yeah, yeah. So that science can help us with these things, but but ultimately, what you know, the way we, I think, mo as human beings, we one of the ways we know the world is through narratives, through stories, through uh, sequences of events. That how did we get here? How, what was the path? What was the journey? What was the nature of the journey? So, Where so, did it begin? So, so, Bill, let me interrupt you for a second, if I may. History is full of fantastic narratives. Fantastic narratives. Really, they, 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 they're, movie, they're movie scripts. 
Yet, yeah. so many teachers, so many professors, so many, so many people's students' introduction to history is they suck out all the nutrients and yeah. you're eating boiled over broccoli that would sat on the counter for three days instead yeah. of a succulent steak. Why yeah. is that? Why is that? Yeah, I mean, well, look, I think that um, a lot of a lot of historians think you really have to. And then look, there's, there's a basis for this. A lot of them think you really have to um, gain a command over a certain factual uh, sort of armory of 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 basic knowledge, almost almost rote learning before you can start to think about uh, interpreting the past. And um, there's something to that. Um, you, know, if we, 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 you know, if we have students who don't know whether the uh, Civil War became, came before or after the First World War, and then, then you, you feel like, well, you're in trouble here. And, and, but, and some of them uh, have no idea who, which side won. Yes, right, right, even the revolution. <laughs> um, so that, that's true up to a point, but um, I think you have to catch them. You, you, you have to you have to tell the story in a way that that, that catches them. And um, you know, I've been working on a uh, a young readers edition of Land of Hope for really for fifth graders who um, uh, uh, that's the that's when most young people take their first course in American history is in fifth grade, sometimes the sixth grade, and. Um, I am finding that the most chat one of the most challenging things I've ever done because you 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 have to simplify. Of course, you you have uh, re reading level issues. You can't. Um, it's real hard to talk about why why did Andrew Jackson oppose the Bank of the United States mm -hmm. without getting into things that fifth graders are just not going to understand. I remember I didn't understand it all this stuff uh, in, in when I studied it. But um, but how can you tell some them something? It's not dumbed down. That, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the enemy of dumbing down. But uh, how do you do that in, in, in a way that still grabs them and is still accurate, that doesn't lead them in a false direction? So when they study it again in the 11th grade, they say, oh, McClay was making all this stuff up. It was, and he was ignoring this. And, you know, this is all false. You don't want to do that. You want to be as as true and complete as you can be given the level you're, you're at. And a lot of times you can do more than you think you can. It's just been really uh, much more of a challenge to me than scholarly writing, because then, then you can explain yourself at length and you can get all those subtleties out there and, and, uh, um, uh, and feel that you're being very complete. But for writing for younger audiences, you, you, I think you have to catch them. And, it, some of that can be done with stories and gimmicks, you know, but um, a lot of it's just in the way you tell it in the, in the sort of sweep of it. Um, and and uh, that's what I, I mean, I've always tried with Land of Hope to, to have this sense that there's a momentum, that there's a way in which what's happening at this time it depends on and refers back to what was happening this earlier time. And to get people thinking about being in a continuum of time that, uh, and 
you know, a big lesson that I, and I say this all the time to my classes, is that history teaches us two things, that, that things have not always been as they are now. And by extension, things will not always be as they are now. And these sound like really silly, stupid assessment, assertions, but when you think about it, um, that's especially for millennials and for this kind of uh, highly mediated generation where you know, everything is, is about what, whatever's happening right now. Um, and the sense that, you know, uh, such and such is the greatest hip hop artist of all time, which time, all time going back three or four years, uh, there's no sense of how, uh, how rooted we are in a long, long journey. And, and how exhilarating it is when you realize that, when you realize you have, you have and can cultivate a connection to people decades and centuries ago and, and uh, understand them as their contemporaries might have. Um, that, that's, I think, it, it, history is, a, is, is a, a work of the imagination. I, I talk a lot about what I call historical consciousness which is, it's, it, it's a, that's a term that students find very off-putting and so I don't use it with them much. But <clears throat> to me, it's like the difference when, when I took my kids to Antietam, the battlefield at Antietam, which by the way, I think is the best, the most haunting of the Civil War battlefields, uh, just for your, your audience. Um, it's, it's unlike Gettysburg, which has been kind of done to death. Antietam is relatively, um, unspoiled and you know you can walk down that sunken road and think about all the all the death and mayhem that took place there but anyway I, I let's just say I go to you know Chattanooga or someplace like that and, and uh, to my children well they're running around and they they see they see the same things I'm seeing but what I see when I look at it and someone who was a specialist in the Civil War would even more see is everything that had gone before all the things that happened, you know, a century and a half ago in that place. Um, and that's having a historical consciousness, the better example of that. And, and, and this is a, another thing that changed my life is um, my, one of my friends in college was the nephew of a man named Henry Hope Reed. And uh, Henry Hope Reed was one of the great, architectural historians of New York City. He was also curator of Central Park. And I, I came to know him as Uncle Henry. And I was out visiting my friend once at the 4th of July and Uncle Henry came by and said, hey, how'd you like me to get, take you on a tour of Lower Manhattan? Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we did this. I had no interest in history at this point, uh, especially American history. Um, and so we went down to you know, the battery and kind of started up from there. And Uncle Henry, who was this incredibly energetic guy, we walked for about six hours through Lower Manhattan. And we would go by, you know, a building in, in Boston. He'd say, well, now, in this year, such and such lived here. And then the, the, this, this happened here. And then it was remodeled in, you know, 1919 and whatever. Uh, and, and on and on, he had this sense of the place that I didn't, I, I couldn't see it in Rome or, you know, Madrid or some, Jerusalem, someplace like that, but in New York City, 
um, he had this very keen sense of the presence of the past. The past was still imminent in these buildings. And the more you knew, the more you felt that imminence. Um, and um, I, th I think that's something we, we, we need to cultivate in ourselves, is that sense of the historical imagination. You know, uh, what I call historical conscious. It, it's I, 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 I totally hear what you're saying because when my kids were young, I took them to Brooklyn Heights, and there's a plaque where it stands now, and I see the Battle of Long Island playing out through King's Highway coming here, and you're back against the wall, and you have the East River. There. That is just unbelievable. Yeah. You can see the ships coming, and every time I'd go there, they go, okay, we got it, Dad. We want to go on the swings. And I just look at her, I say, you're Washington. What do you do? <laughs> Your back is against the water. You're losing. Yeah. And then a fog rolls in, and here's what he does. And I tell them, and I go, but what about the ships? I go, there happened to be a wind up the East River that prevented the bridge. <laughs> was that a miracle? I said, well, they sure, sir. sir. If it wasn't yeah, for that, yeah. the game was over. That was it. We lost. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. just fascinating. So this, I think that a lot of teachers teach it from the book, and they don't live it. And it's a shame. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And 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 there's a. Uh, I'll give you another example of something that happens, and and it, it is. Uh, it really can help when you can find a way to connect uh, history with the experience of young people. I mean that it, it's that's always been true. I think it's more true than ever now. But um, I. Uh, I, I've taught in places. Well, I taught in, in Tennessee, in East Tennessee, where um, uh, a lot of uh, the, the TVA, Tennessee Valley Authority, had, had an enormous impact on that region. And, uh, and there were lots of uh, stories of people who were displaced from their land. There, there are a lot of stories that have never, never told. But um, anyway, when we were covering the New Deal in class, I said, hey, you know, uh, go home and talk to your parents or your grandparents, or in some cases, great-grandparents, because that, that area is very stable that way, about what they remember about TVA and, and, and the effects of it. And, and um, let me know, you, you can write, for paper assignment, you can write about that. Uh, well, it, it's, it's astonishing, and it, it uh, you know, one, family at graduation told me, you changed our family because all of a sudden uh, my son wanted to know about these things from his grandparents. And they started having these amazing conversations about you know, not just TVA, but about the New Deal, about Roosevelt, about uh, um, prohibition, uh, you know, all sorts of things that all of a sudden they discovered they had a connection to this in their own lives. And and the grandparents were just thrilled that that instead of their kids being like alien creatures that for whom uh, ancient history was, you know, Britney Spears, <laughs> uh, they, 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 uh, they, they felt the connection to the past too. So uh, it's wonderful when you can come up with things like that. The, 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 uh, the best is immigration because uh, no matter where you live, uh, especially now, no matter where you live, um, you're going to run into people who either have had the experience of immigration or their second generation, maybe, or, or they know people 
and uh, and to sort of connect that uh, with larger currents of American history, um, especially I think uh, where you have a longer record that you know the great 19th century immigrants, you know the Russian Jewish, uh, Polish, Italian, Greek, I Irish. Of course, the Irish go back to the 18. 40s even and Germans. Um, then there are these there are, are all sorts of stories, including some of these stories about prejudice and how difficult it was to make their way and that you know the country was not always welcoming and you know uh, all of that's part of the story. But you know I would ask kids, you know, if if you have uh, someone in your family who's uh, um, close to the experience of immigration, talk to them about it and, and uh, come and tell us about it. And uh, it, it was, even in East Tennessee, there was enough of that, that you, you could uh, could really make some hay with it. And suddenly the past was something just really alive. And oh, there goes those lights again. Let me go get that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I hear you. And, and, I, and I just wish more teachers would do what you're doing to make the history uh, connect, make it more alive, make it more enjoyable, because they're competing with something that many, no one ever had before, the internet. So many distractions, Instagram, yeah, six yeah. things. So it has to be good. It has to be really great. But uh, uh, your book is, I, I think, a first step uh, and I hope others pick up your cue after they see how successful your book has become and how uh, well-received it is. I hope other historians of, um, of, uh, of academia really uh, come out of their shell and say, you know, there's a big world out there and we really have to do battle. Because the, battles, the battlefield is going to be won with information. And we see it's being yeah. lost now. It's being lost with with with. Uh, misinformation to the point of fantasy, to the point of, 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 of just crap being made up and with the label of history, which is so terrible for this country mm -hmm. and, and, for, and for the citizens and for our mm -hmm. kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's, it, it's, um, it's very unfortunate. It, you know, the, there are people, you mentioned Ron Cherno and David McCullough, and there there are people who are doing great things. Um, and look at Cherno's edit book on Hamilton, Hamilton yeah, results yeah. in a Broadway musical. You know, uh, but most college professors are not, they don't have, they don't have the talent, you know, they don't have the talent that Ron Cherno has and the energy and drive. Uh, it, uh, it, it takes a lot to, uh, to work that way. And, and I don't think he's, I think he might've had a visiting lectureship or something at the CUNY or, or something like that, but I don't think he's an academic at all. McCullough is not. Certainly not. He's not uh, a historian. You know, he was never trained no. as a historian, which makes him so he, good. <laughs> yes. Yes. He, he's virtually impossible to reach, by the way, he has no email and, and I don't think you can even call him on the telephone. He lives on Martha's Vineyard and, uh, there's a post office box. I have an address for it. I corresponded with him a couple of times. Yeah, and, and, he, and he writes all uh, his books on, on, a, on a, yeah. I think, an Underwood typewriter. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, I think that's a beautiful thing. But mm -hmm. um, 
Mm-hmm. But you know, this is just what I, I since we're winding down here, I just want to make one point that that I think we've lost a sense that the past is a resource. That the, it, it, that the past is not just something we edit to our predilection. Uh, because when we do that, all we get back is the mirror of ourselves. You know, it's as if you, you go to the window to look out and but the window is, you know, is, is like the one way, the one way mirror, you know, the, the, it, it reflects back to you. That's what happens when we construct the past consciously in the image of what we want the present or the future to be. Wow. Um, we, we shouldn't do that. Um, although at the same time, and I have to admit, this may sound a little bit contradictory, what I just said, but I don't think it is. I'm very concerned that young, about the version of American history that young people are learning and how demoralizing it is to them. It, 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 it gives them a sense that they have no future. Um, I, I'm st- struck um, by the statistics that, that they're out there about, for example, I mean, the, the, the one that, that really grabs me is that it, the rate of suicide of young people between the age of 10 and 24, I think, uh, over the last uh, 10 or 15 years has gone up 60%. Yeah, and especially during, especially during last year, during COVID, it soared. Yes, COVID. It's, 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 yeah, we don't really have yet the full toll, but it's going to be awful. And, and the lingering effects of that are going to be awful. I mean, kids have been deprived a year of their lives and uh, some parents have done a great job or they say, think they've done a great job. And I think many of them have done a great job, but wow, it's, it's just, uh, but but leaving aside COVID, um, how much of this sense that, that there's no future worth living for it comes from, uh, let's say the 1619 project, which you know teaches that America uh, that America has encoded in its DNA. I'm not. This is what they say. I'm not yeah. making that up. Uh, the 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 the, uh, the the sort of contagion of uh, anti-black racism it is it is at the core of our being. And if it's in your DNA, it means that short of uh, some sort of engineering uh, that we don't have now, uh, but engineering of the human person, we'll always be this way and we'll always be guilty. Um, that's a demoralizing prospect. It's demoralizing for white kids. It's demoralizing for black kids too. It, um, and I, I, uh, I think we have to stop it. <laughs> that, is, that, that is antithetical to what it means to be an aspirational nation. And and to be an aspirational nation, you know, to be a land of hope is a kind of spiritual matter. It's not just we we are abundantly blessed with material resources, have always been. All that's true. So is so is Brazil. (laughs) But we had other things here that they don't have. They haven't had in Brazil. Um, uh, And and. and this aspirational quality, that's why Brazilians come here <laughs> to or, or, or and now Africans more and more are coming here and uh, they don't understand. Um, I don't know whether you get the African cab drivers where you live, uh, you know, I seem to get them all the time and they're always coming. What, what is all this? 
um, you know, they don't get it. They don't understand. They don't understand what 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 um, uh, BLM and other movements like that are really about. Uh, because for them, this has been the greatest thing that ever happened to them to come to this country. I, I, I once had a, I once had a, uh, a an Uber driver just a few months ago, and he was taking me to the airport, and he was from um, one of the. Eastern European countries. I forgot one of. The, I, I, I don't want to say because I'm going to be wrong, and I always strike up a conversation. You know what a great land mm-hmm. this is. That here you are driving me. We're having a conversation. You're in your own business as an Uber driver in a sense. Yeah. And I said, "What do you love best about this country?" He goes, "I go to the faucet. I turn on. I get clean water." Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. So. Uh, and, 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 <laughs> you know, what more can one say, right? Yeah, we have clean water, well, we have sanitation, and we have our, our bellies are full. Yeah. <laughs> Everything else is gravy. And, and and there's a lot to be said for those things. Um, but, you know, it's also the history of the country that we're, we we always want more. We want to do more. We want to uh, want well, challenges. We want that, to, that's why he's driving 15 hours a day. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a any why his he's here only four or five years. I don't remember how long he was here. He 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 borrowed a car. He he worked his weapon. He was so proud that he now owns this car and and he's able to be his own boss. Forget that fact. He's making like fourteen dollars an hour. It doesn't matter because he doesn't see himself doing this for the rest of his life. I, I no, own my own right. business. Uh, he's that, he's, he's aspirational. He's accumulating capital, and that's going to go into something else. And Bim bam, you know, uh, he's going to be the guy being driven around in, in an Uber by somebody else. Hundred <laughs> percent, uh, Wilford Bill McClay. I want to thank you so much. The book is "The oh, Land gosh. of Hope: An Invitation to the Great American Story." Uh, it's on Amazon for about twenty some more dollars. It's now on Kindle. I see that your publisher is having a sale for three dollars. <laughs> what took you? I don't know how long to write. <laughs> you can't get yeah. a bit. Of, you can't get a cup of coffee for less than three dollars in New York. So I, I want to tell you, just reading one chapter. Someone should just read one chapter. It's refreshing. It makes you feel good to be an American. So I, th- I think uh, you've done an amazing, amazing job. And uh, Bill, continued, continued success to you. Well, the same to you. And it's been a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so Hope much. Hope we can do it again. Likewise, I definitely. Thanks so much, Bill. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.